Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is Dr. Andrew George Thomas. Andrew is currently Senior Lecturer in Psychology at Swansea University, researching in the area of evolutionary psychology. He's also a former colleague and friend of great friend of the pod, William Costello. Andrew did his BSc in Psychology at Cardiff University, but then moved to Swansea University for his PhD, where he studied with Professor Steve Stewart-Williams. In order to fund his PhD, Andrew worked part-time and then full-time in the private sector alongside it, before he managed to get his foot in the door in academia and has since stayed there for the last seven years. Andrew is also the founder of blog Darwin Does Dating, where he writes about dating, relationships and the sexual marketplace through an evolutionary psych lens. I initially came across Andrew through one of his tweets, which blew my mind. It said, quote, Don't make the mistake of assuming men have a similar experience to women in terms of receiving compliments, affection, touch. Compliment a man who isn't in the top 5% of desirability and chances are you'd have been the first person to do so for months. In this episode, we discuss all of the mental health angles around that tweet, his journey into academia, social class and access in academia itself, mating strategies, becoming a qualified counsellor, the concept of dysphoric singlehood, and the largest study of incels ever conducted, which was run by him and his colleagues in his department, and what it uncovered. For Andrew's mental health, we discussed the mental health impact that a previous relationship breakup had on him, as well as two separate but serious bouts of depression and anxiety, which took place in around 2012 and 2016, respectively. We discussed those experiences, how he managed them and overcame them, and how he used them to train as a mental health counsellor and his attitude towards therapy and medication. So this is how my conversation with Dr. Andrew George Thomas went. Andrew, welcome to the Just Check In pod. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you. You are the second Swansea Uni academic I have interviewed after friend of the pod, Dr. Joe Whitaker, who I'm sure you're aware of and perhaps colleagues with. How are you first, mate? Yes, I'm all right. I listened to Joe's podcast, so now oh, this, is the, this is the hard act to follow. But no, I'm doing <laughs> I, I'm doing really well this morning. Thank you for asking. Excellent, man. I'm glad you enjoyed Joe's, and hopefully we'll have an, uh, an equally as good, if not better, podcast with this one than, <laughs> than Joe's. But we'll see. We'll see how we get on, mate. I absolutely loved our chat off air, and we've got a ton of stuff to dive into. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Absolutely. Let's go for it. Let's start your pod by talking about your academic journey, Andrew. So tell me first how and why you got into academia from starting your BSc to staying in this career path. What inspired you and the journey to where you are today? 
Yeah, well, I think a lot of my students actually would consider me a bit of a hypocrite if they knew how I got into psychology, because I'm constantly complaining about how students just sort of follow the highest grade they have without thinking, you know, at A-level, without thinking about an actual concrete career pathway. But that actually was me. I remember in A-levels, I sort of got a high grade for computing, a high grade for psychology and decided, hey, I'm going to do psychology, which is a decision I sometimes regret because I've got a couple of friends of mine who at the same time went the other route, who own Teslas and have, you know, £100,000 100, a year. And sometimes I have that, what the hell did I do moment? But I sort of chased the good grades, went into psychology in Cardiff, really enjoyed it, made some good friends. But what really made the difference for me in terms of deciding, hey, I actually want to go down an academic route with this, was in my second year, I discovered evolutionary psychology. And evolutionary psychology is a sort of meta theory for explaining just all of the other different parts of psychology, cognitive, behavioral, social. It links everything together, and it's so satisfying. And we didn't actually have any evolutionary psychology on my BSc course. I just sort of stumbled upon it. And then when I opened one of the textbooks and realized that every single module I was sitting in university was contained in this evolutionary psychology textbook in some shape or form, I was like, wow, mind blown. Such a satisfying theory. So I decided after my BSc in Cardiff, I had a bit of a wibbly-wobbly route, if I'm honest. So what most people do if they want to go into academia is after they finish their BSc, they go and specialize further in a master's. Then they go and do a PhD. Then they maybe do a postdoc, then go on for lecturing. But I decided at the end of my bachelor's that I had enough of sitting down and being taught things. So I decided, hey, can I skip this master's thing, which I did, and I just went straight into the PhD, which was an interesting experience because I think... The first year of my PhD was almost like a write-off waste with me trying to like catch up on the gaps in my knowledge that I missed. But yeah, you know, mistakes happen. But I'm so glad that I stuck with it because it just filled me with enthusiasm for psychology that has carried me right the way through to today. But one of the hardest parts of that, which which makes my journey a bit more wibbly-wobbly, is the fact that that PhD was self-funded. So I did it over seven years, worked full time in retail to basically fund it. And I think (laughs) I have friends of mine who had fully funded PhDs in really prestigious universities who did it for the money and not the subject. And a lot of them have actually left academia now. Whereas for me, I was left chasing this thing that I was having to fund for myself. And now... 10, 15 years down the line, I still have the passion for it. So I think that sets me aside a little bit. So I've had a bit of a weird academic journey Mm. compared to your sort of standard cookie cutter shape, I think. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you make because obviously a lot of people, they manage BAs or BSCs. Whilst working part-time, a lot of students have to do that. I I fortunately wasn't in the privilege of needing to do that. But when you're doing a PhD, which is, you know, 10 times workload, perhaps potentially more than an undergrad, and you are also working full time, how did you manage your mental health when you had to balance these intertwined, but also very separate lives? Yeah. So sometimes I find it's good to have different things going on in your life. The worst periods of my life, mental health wise, have been periods where I felt very one dimensional. I'm doing just one thing nothing else outside of it. Because of course, if something goes wrong with that one thing, then everything is going wrong. That's your identity. Yeah, 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 exactly. So to some degree, it was useful to have that little bit of a divide. Because Mm. if something was going wrong in one area of my life, if like my research wasn't panning out, 
I was kind of doing okay in other parts. But then there was this sort of natural frustration, especially working full-time, of this is where I am, but this is where I want to be. And the divide between that sometimes being a bit upsetting and a bit deflating. Yeah, and it was very tough as well, sort of having one foot in the real world and one foot in the ivory tower. That's a, a balance to be struck in and of itself. For a while, I used to feel a sense of shame about doing things the way that I did because it wasn't the sort of standard way of doing things. But I think now looking back in hindsight, I think it's given me some really good insights about how the world actually works compared to what people who have only ever been in academia and only ever uh, you know come from a family of doctors uh, sometimes they miss that appreciation for the different stratas of society and different pockets of groups within society mm. so yeah it was a, it, an interesting experience doing mm. things that way sort of like when a non-league striker ends up becoming a premier league striker he has more perspective than maybe one a player who ends up from the academy Ab- going straight absolutely in. absolutely this is where i nod and i pretend i understand football <laughs> <laughs> I go, yes, that's the thing about Arsenal. They always try to walk it in. Yeah, the that's IT what... crowd, classic, classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, that's a good analogy anyway. After you completed your PhD, like I said in the intro, your big break came when your now head of department at Swansea University offered you a chance to work in the department on a maternity cover. At the mm. time, given what you had gone through, the challenges, the scraping through to get to where you were, did you think this is the best chance I'll ever get? I just have to take it. Absolutely. The thing is, by that point, I'd met my long-term girlfriend, who's now my wife, and I decided that I wanted to do something in the South Wales area. I didn't want to go because she was she was an academic as well, and she was in Cardiff University, so I wanted to stay nearby. Now, there's a couple of things that you should know about academia, little cultural things. So one is they don't like giving you a job where you did your PhD. And two, there is a big emphasis kind of entwined really of going outwards. So if you do a position here, you need to go and do somewhere else, maybe somewhere in a different country. And it's with this idea of of an exchange of knowledge and exchange of ideas, which I understand on one hand, but on the other, I think it's very tough for people who are in life circumstances, which yeah, I was going to say, uh, yeah, you're getting away with that. Particularly, I mean, I'm a bloke, but that particularly affects women, especially if they're uh, women with mm. young children and stuff mm. like that. So it doesn't sit perfectly well with me. I understand it, but for it to become almost like a rule is, uh, yeah, I, I think it does a bit of harm. Now, with me, I was sat there in this position, going, "Great, I've got this PhD now, but if I want to get this academic career." I'm going to have to do something different because I'd be attending interviews with people who'd had three, four years as a postdoc, who'd been all around the world, who hadn't done their PhD in in Wales. And yeah, I felt a little bit like the cards were stacked against me. But my tactic was that I just wouldn't take no for an answer. So I've managed to find out that you can get enrolled on like honorary research contracts. So I got myself enrolled on an honorary research contract. And then I just kept turning up. I kept turning up to my old department. Me again. (laughs) Basically, once a week, finding an empty room, working in the empty room, 
And my head of department, Paul Bennett, kind of an old school clinical psychologist, he used to love coming and doing the rounds and seeing who was in and talking to everyone. And uh, every week he'd see me there <laughs> with my laptop because no, no office or anything, laptop and a coffee working away. And I was there. And I think that that's what made a big difference in the end because they got into a position like happens sometimes in academia where they need someone and they need someone now. A lot mm-hmm. of the time people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll come and start a job with you, but it'll be next September when I wrap up my commitments. So they needed someone. They needed someone now. They needed someone who knew the department, who could hit the ground running, and who was good at teaching, and I am good at teaching. And so they gave me the chance, and that was it. The, the moment they gave me an inch, I took a mile, and then very quickly it was right well, we want you here permanently. And then very quickly after that, it was right, well, we want to promote you. Now I've recently been put in a position where they've actually lowered my teaching load to allow me to pick up more research. So they're starting to recognize the quality of my research as well. So I now, for the first time in my life, almost feel like back on the right path instead of doing the wibbly wobbly thing behind it. And I know I appreciate probably talking a bit too much about this, but this is something that really plagued me for quite a while from a mental health perspective of, of not having gotten to where I was but not properly and not right and not correct like my peers had around me and that used to really really weigh on me a little bit and I finally now feel like I'm on the same pathway as, as others are it's a bit of a strange thing yeah I have this weird story of being able to create opportunities for myself but then feeling a little bit sad that I had to make opportunities for myself if you see what I mean. Mm. Let's talk about your academic work through a mental health lens now because your PhD was specifically in mating strategies and the preferences Mm. people have in short-term and long-term relationships. So your desire to focus on the subject actually came from quite a big negative in your life. We're going to discuss it in depth later on in the pod. You called it me search. So take me back to that period and why you used it as <laughs> academic inspiration rather than a subject to completely avoid. <laughs> yeah, so research is a really cool term, actually. Once you're aware of it, so for those who aren't aware of it, it's this idea that most people in psychology or sociology or any sort of human studies are researching something that has personal significance to them. So, you know, if you've got someone who's studying autism, maybe they're autistic or has a family member who is. So then when you come across someone who, say, for example, studies paraphilia, then you go, hang about what's going on here. <laughs> That's a red flag. <laughs> Which is why, actually, during my PhD, when I was dating, when they used to ask me what I did as a psychologist, I used to be like, oh, I study memory. <laughs> because it, it raised Kills questions. a conversation stone dead. Killed, yeah, yeah. killed a conversation stone dead to say you do relationships and mating. So, yeah, like I said, I kind of fell in love with evolutionary psychology during my bachelor's degree, but it's a meta theory, so there's a big scope. So evolutionary psychologists study child development, they study personality, they study sex and relationships, they study cooperation. It's a big net, and I found all of that equally fascinating. What happened to me in the later stages of my bachelor's degree is that I got uh, cheated on in a relationship, and that affected me really, really badly, actually. And I had a horrendous time getting support for it as well. So I know we'll probably talk about this later on, but I've recently re- kind of not retrained, but side-trained into counseling and psychotherapy. And actually part of my inspiration for that is just how badly, how bad the support was for me when I was undergoing the fallout of that. So yeah, it really hurt me because it was cheating with someone that I knew and trusted. So it was a double whammy. It was Mm. now I can't trust 
partners and now I can't trust friends. And it was, yeah, it was a really, really dark time in my life. But it sort of started drawing me more towards the type of research that explains why people might cheat. And I stumbled across something called uh, sexual strategies theory, which is this idea that actually people hold two mating strategies in their head. So, so humans have two very different mating styles. One is long-term, you know, I want to be happily married, committed, live together, have kids. And the other one is short-term, which is more promiscuous. And whereas some people can be more categorized by one strategy than another, the majority of the time, actually, people are, are up to both in varying degrees, and they pick one and run with one over the other. When I started reading about this, I was like, oh, wow, this is so fascinating. When you understand this theory, it really enriches your perspective on mating in general. And it gives you a different view when you see people out and about doing what they're doing in the in the uh, mating market. So I was there thinking, oh, hang about this sort of short term mating thing, long term mating thing, different degrees. I wonder what pushes people towards one side or another, which I guess was my way of, in a roundabout way, thinking, well, actually, what leads people towards cheating? What takes people from a long-term relationship context into a more short-term one? And yeah, that sort of sparked my interest and pushed me down that pathway. Now, of course, I have a, a much more nuanced view of that these days, having come out the other side, because actually a lot of cheating that happens in long-term relationships are actually to initiate another long-term relationship. Yes, monkey so slinging, less, as David yeah, Buss says. Yeah. yeah, so it's less it's less about, oh, I have this stable long-term relationship and I want to bid on the side. It's more about, I have this stable long-term relationship, but I think I can have a better one. Let's switch over. <laughs> it's uh, burning uh, out. Uh, let me let me warm yeah, up a new one. Yeah, <laughs> Indeed. But it, yeah, it sort of got got me thinking about what nudges people in in different directions and that ended up being sort of the main topic of my thesis actually was what stimuli can you show to people that has an impact on whether they see people as suitable for short-term relationships over long-term ones and we mm. found some interesting interesting stuff with that you're a heterosexual man so did you find any differences or similarities between why infidelity happens in heterosexual men and women versus gay men and lesbians as i imagine there's probably as many differences between gay men and lesbians as there are between straight yeah, men and women yeah. so the short answer is no the longer answer is no because i didn't look for it i have, <laughs> I have, I have so at least you're honest <laughs> no i am honest and the thing is like i tell my students about this like i have so much respect for people who approach these sorts of questions about non-heterosexual people. Because the sample site, getting the samples is so hard. How have you seen, and this comes on to our next topic in a second, which is your blog, but how have you seen the rise of dating apps impact on these strategies and the wider mental health of men and women? Let's just say heterosexual men and women for the purposes of this question. Because as we yeah. know, dating apps are dominated by men across the scale. I'm pretty safe yeah. in saying because I know this is sourced from a video that I watched that Tinder is 90% men in the UK, for example. So I think every day, drip, 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 slowly coming to hate dating apps more and more. Yeah, We're preaching so, to the choir, mate. <laughs> yeah, but, but not because they don't. Okay, for a couple of reasons. So one, they're killing off alternative ways of meeting people entirely. Yes. So they're, I so find they're it so hard a, now, ridiculously hard. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think it was 2021, 60% of long-term couples met on dating apps. Mm -hmm. Every other metric, meeting through friends, that's the second best one, but that's going down. Meeting through family, meeting through the workplace, through education. Work has gone like this. And the listeners can't it's, see, but it's basically a cliff, yeah. a cliff face. Yeah. And part of that is companies cracking down on relationships in the workplace, but part of it is obviously 
remote working and stuff like that. And um, risk, I would say as well for men. I feel like men just don't want to take the risk. Yeah. If they're engaging in a, a potential partner who's at the same level as them. In, in essence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there is risk involved anytime you try to initiate a relationship where A, there's uh, maybe an imbalance of power. Yes, I yeah, don't like yeah. using the word power, but power within the workplace. And it's a fixed context which people have to come back to. It's always risky. It was risky in school, for example. Of course. Yeah, yeah. It's on someone in school. You've got to see them the next day. You know, there, there's inherent risk. The thing that concerns me is, is that it's moving in a place of lack of choice. Now, the online apps and online websites have weaknesses associated with them. They're good for some things, they're bad for others. And the problem is the weaknesses mattered less when there were alternatives. But when mm. there's no alternative, then those weaknesses become a fundamental broken part of the mating system in general. So the things that I see on the dating apps, which is actually causing a lot of animosity between men and women, are things like this. Men, we've already talked about short-term and long-term strategies, right? So men, when you meet them for the first time, if you're from a, a heterosexual woman's perspective, you have to figure out whether they're just after promiscuity, they're just mm -hmm. after a fling, or whether they're after a long-term relationship. Because at time mm -hmm. zero, it's indistinguishable, unless yes. it's on their profile, and even then that could be a lie. <laughs> so the reason why there's many more men on Tinder than women is because a large proportion of those men will just be looking for casual sex. Yes. There will be some who are looking for both, and there will be some who are looking for long-term sex. So straight away, it sets up this position where women have to be more selective. And they so have to be anyway because they get so much more likes than men in general. Exactly. Above yeah, a certain level of attractiveness, yeah. yeah. But then you've got to ask yourself, who are they getting the likes from? It's actually a lot of it. it it's not. See, a lot of the, the toxicity in the narrative around what happens between men and women on dating websites, I'm convinced that toxicity comes from a place of not understanding short-term versus long-term mating. So people will look at the fact that women are getting lots of likes. And they'll say, look at all of these men who want to get married, who are liking all of these women, and the women aren't liking them back. Isn't that? I don't cool? think people are arguing that, by the way. <laughs> no, no, but, 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 but they'll take it to the logical conclusion. Sure, okay, so, I get women you. Are, yeah, yeah. Women are really picky. Women don't make the effort and blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, the reality is that the vast majority of those likes are guys who just want casual sex, who are liking and are cast in the net yeah 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 and cast in the net yeah so you get this combination so from a female's perspective what they need to do is they say well first of all i got ten thousand people i've got to try and cut down now freddie last time you went and bought something on amazon and there was a ten thousand products what did you do to the try best and one. make a decision the best one yeah so f i want five stars i wanted free delivery i want it to come tomorrow you know i want it in black rather than red and then what happens is you go from 10,000, I don't know, meat thermometers down to four or five. And then when that happens, it's an easier decision to make. So these dating websites, by the fact that they are allowing men to, they're mixing together men's short-term and long-term strategies in their approach to women, coupled with choice overload for women and having to cut things down, are leading to these really silly things like women going, well... I mean, we we did we plotted up the data. We had some dating website data, and we looked at women's search functions. No, actually, no. It was the other way around. We looked at what what heights guys. I was going to say that's how height that's how height comes being. into it because they need a filter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So on dating websites, guys who are like five foot 
seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven all put themselves as six foot. When oh, I, looked, I didn't, when but I, I, but I was just thought you were about to say it's coming into my, <laughs> my range here. When I ran the data, what you'd expect when you pull off the height of, of males on dating websites is you'd expect a nice normal distribution like that. But it doesn't. It goes like that, six foot, and then down the other, the other side. Because guys have cottoned on to the fact that much like someone sending a product has to get it to five stars on Amazon, you have to get your height to six foot to pass the filter. Women, if you're listening, if you wonder why men lie about their height, that is why. This is, this is why, you know. So so there's a lot of weaknesses. It's causing people to do some strange and funky things. And also, in the same way as, you know, when you do five-star rating on Amazon, when you do color red, you're doing these univariate decisions. You're not considering something holistically. And so it takes away from that as well. So I, I'm, I'm starting to fall out of love with dating apps and websites as they corner the market more and more well uh, yeah and, and also the downside to what you just said is that if they get down to the top four or five then those top four or five are in a particular bracket of attractiveness of men and they will have a lot of options so it then increases the capacity for ghosting and short-term casual relationships because they can just off one immediately when one exactly, wants to yeah. initiate a long-term one yeah and then that's going to leave women with the impression that all of us are just like that. These guys are are pigs. And this is the thing, you see, because it's such a dominant force, people see it as the only option. Yes. And so because it's the only option, the stuff that happens on them is making people think that that is what dating is. Real life, yeah. Yeah. And this is where I think it feeds into a lot of the beliefs that, say, the incel community have, because Mm. dating, for the longest time in human history, dating hasn't been that. And it still has the potential not to be that. But if you think that the entire world is is dating app, then to you, the entire world is dating app. With, with and there's an element of truth in that because it is slowly becoming the entire world. That's the worry. Yeah, that, that is yeah. the element of truth to it. I mean, the thing is, though, the only glimmer of hope that I have, which is something that probably members of the pickup artist community would cotton on to, they have this concept of peacocking. You've probably heard of peacocking. Yeah, so you go into the club and you've got the purple leopard jumpsuit on to stand out because you're doing something different. I don't think yourself, you're getting girls with that unless you're Peter Stringfellow, by the way. But <laughs> but setting yourself apart and jumping out from the crowd. Well, actually, you know, if, if it does keep going, dating website, dating website, dating website, you might find a little bit of a rebound in as much as, oh, hey, someone on the street called me pretty and gave me their number. Oh, how different. <laughs> We're going to get to that because, yeah, men don't normally get those compliments. And also men and women aren't going out as much because it's so expensive. So if you combine those two together, then, yeah, it's just a disaster waiting to happen. Let's move on to your blog, Darwin Does Dating, because you use this to discuss all the issues that we've just discussed through a mental health lens. Just tell me first about something you call dysphoric singlehood and how it impacts the mental health of men predominantly, more specifically. So... I'm not going to just accept that because I think it affects men and women. Sorry, what I meant to say is how does it affect men more specifically? Not that it affects them more, sorry. Ah, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so dysphoric singlehood is this idea that I have. It's from the observation that people are starting or some people are starting to develop extreme and enduring discomfort with regards to their singlehood status. Not everyone. So some people are single and they just don't care. They're biding their time. They're fine. 
it doesn't affect them. But other is people... that a cope, do you think? <laughs> do you think they've just developed that well, as a cope? It, 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 it's only a cope. Speaking from they... experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for me, it's, o- it's only a cope if they know it's a cope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, yeah, I guess it's so. It's not a cope if you're just doing it, you know? In the same way as me eating lunch isn't a, a cope for, for survival, it's just me eating food. So some people just don't care. They think it's okay. Maybe they like their own time. And they don't really think about it much. For other people their singlehood status almost becomes a very uncomfortable part of their identity. Now, I've done quite a bit of research on the incel community, and they're probably the most notable example of this. But the thing about that I've noticed about the incel community is a lot of people are getting really caught up on, say, very specific terms, red pill, black pill, Chad, Stacy, etc., etc. Some of the, the nuanced cultural creations that come along with this movement. But of course, the idea of being single and not liking it and finding extreme discomfort from it is not a new thing. That's something that would have happened 100,000 years ago, and in 100,000 years' time, it'll still be there. But the label incel won't, and red pill won't, and chad won't, because they're products of the now. They're ways that people communicate their discomfort, conceptualize the way things are. I think it's useful to go one underneath this and look at What's that layer, that layer underneath, which at that level is essentially the extreme levels of discomfort and frustration around one's singlehood status. What's useful about going that level underneath is when the stuff on top changes, it doesn't really matter because it's just a different type of language to describe this feeling. But also it allows you to broaden it to other types of people who are suffering with their singlehood because it's not just incels. So... It allows you to look at women, for example. So there are women who are frustrated with their singlehood status. Whether you want to blame them for it or whatever, I don't care about any of that. Okay, that's a a thing. I don't blame them. I just say there are people out there who are single and don't want to be, for whatever reason, and they're really struggling and suffering with that. For some women, for example, it could be that they constantly find themselves misjudging the intentions of men and find themselves having short-term relationships when they actually want long-term relationships. And I've met several people who have just had lots of short-term relationships, trying to get them off the ground to long-term, being ghosted, having them fall apart, and feeling like, what's wrong with me? Why am I only Mm. good enough for sex, but no one loves me enough to actually want to go on a journey with me to do some major life things like moving in together and having kids and they can get really really frustrated and upset mm. with those sorts of emotions as well but other really interesting things as well like there are people out there who are widowed for example who find themselves missing companionship and wanting to start something new but at the same time feel a lot of intense guilt and that they have to hold back because of the memory of their past partner and feeling like they're doing an injustice to them so there's lots of different subcategories to this pervasive idea that there are some people who really want to be in relationships can't and are really disturbed by that and where the dysphoric term comes in is actually dysphoria i know gender dysphoria is a, a very recent thing but if you just look at the term dysphoria it's been used for a very very long time and all dysphoria is is persistent, uncomfortable, intense, negative feelings with regards to your status about something. So that's how it applies to gender. Here, I'm saying it applies to singlehood. We were speaking off air about the rhetoric between the quote-unquote newly single woman versus the newly single man and why they differ so much and for what reasons. So i.e. for the former, 
in popular culture, magazines, anywhere you want to look, it's a lot of discourse about being independent, being free, being carefree, kind of rediscovering your identity or getting back in touch with parts of your identity you would perhaps let go and being more outgoing. Whilst with men, it's a pretty mixed story. I don't know if there's a single narrative or a discourse that's been popularized about it. Can you explain that comparison and perhaps your own perspective on it? I mean, the first thing that jumps out to me when you say that is the two biggest breakdowns of, well, not two biggest, but if you think about the things at the top of the list for what drives male suicidal tendencies, it's things like losing relationships, losing jobs Mm. and feeling like a burden to people. So that's probably one of the reasons it's not necessarily celebrated by men. They have exited a relationship. Statistically, we know that they are less likely to end that relationship than women are. That doesn't mean that men don't end relationships. Of course they do. But the average man who's outside a relationship will be not at their hands. Well, yeah. maybe at their That's hands why they initiate them. divorce less. Yeah. Yes, they, they haven't initiated it. That's not to say I haven't done shitty things. There are so many really, really <laughs> shitty things. So I think men are probably more likely to be in a position where they've been left than doing the leaving. And I think just by virtue of that alone, when you're in control of terminating a relationship, it's a very different experience to when you're not in control. You kind of mentally prepare yourself for it. You have time to come to terms with it. And so part of it might be that I am concerned, though, because I have met some women who have left relationships, both initiated by them or not initiated by them, who've been absolutely completely devastated by it. So I think if you're in a long-term committed relationship that you care about and that falls to pieces, that's not a nice experience in general. Maybe there's something there about coping strategies and the narrative is there as a form of social support. I don't know. But my view is that generally speaking, there are more people who suffer from the uh, breakdown of relationship than there are those who are throwing a party and thinking, yeah, that's amazing. Before we move on to the reason why I came across you, Andrew, you were also keen to give your own dating tips and tricks from an Evo Psych perspective on the pod. So here is your chance. What should my, and I'm probably going to say male listeners in this question, be doing or not doing? So, right. I I did this with another pod recently. Right. (laughs) Here's the problem, right? I have tips, but people are rarely, and I know this from being a therapist as well, it's very rarely that you can just give tips to people and they go, oh, okay, I'll try that because there's loads of barriers in the way. So I, as usual, I'll give you some things that I genuinely think that if people actually gave a chance and engaged with and tried rather than going hopeless, 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 I'm not going to bother, might actually make a difference. And some of them, frustratingly, actually line up with the folk wisdom that often people dispense without thinking behind it that people then dismiss. So, you know, your mum, for example, might say to you, you need to love yourself first, yeah, before you can attract. And everyone goes, oh, shut up, mum, that's so stupid, yeah? But actually, there's a, great, there's a grain of truth to that. And the grain of truth to that is if you are making your entire identity about having, securing, finding, keeping, and thriving within a relationship with another person, then your whole identity is beholden to the decisions of people you have no influence over. Yes. And as we said earlier, if you have a one-dimensional identity, when something goes wrong, the whole of you goes wrong. Rejection is regular for men, and we've got to get used to that. So if it's if you're not good at dealing with that, then yeah. 
So the idea is you need to build your identity up, make it more multidimensional, and don't just make it about that. That will help with coping. It'll help with mental health because there's a lot of things that people don't realize. There's interactions, right? So if you make your identity just about that and you get rejection and you feel bad, your mental health will decline. Your attitudes toward, as a heterosexual man, your attitudes towards women will become more negative. And make no bones about it. You can say it's not the case, but you're wrong. Having misogynistic attitudes is not attractive to women. It's not attractive. People go, oh, yeah, well, there are superstar rich guys out there who act misogynistic towards women and they get laid all the time. Well, they might be very good at hiding it. But generally speaking, misogynistic viewpoints about women is a big red flag that you might treat someone badly. So misogynistic views towards women, unfortunately as well, poor mental health is also not attractive. And there have been studies on this. So if you do make preference studies and say this is someone's mental health and it's low, people move away from that. So by building your identity up, you can improve your mental health. It should reduce your negative views of women more generally as you come to experience them in different domains, friends, colleagues. And that can get you on the road to becoming a healthier, less disturbed by this person and from my perspective as a therapist that's good enough because that's going to improve your quality of life but it's also going to maximize your opportunities of attracting someone else as a byproduct let's come to the reason that i came across you mate which is your brilliant tweet and it's one of the tweets which really kind of blew my mind on so many levels and you wrote quote don't make the mistake of assuming men have a similar experience to women in terms of receiving compliments, affection, touch. Compliment a man who isn't in the top 5% of desirability and chances are you'll have been the first person to do so for months. Now, initially, I couldn't quite put my finger on why it kind of blew my mind so much because of how true it was, but I've got my own thoughts on that, which I'll come to in a second. Just explain that tweet through a mental health lens. Well, through a mental health lens and from the male perspective, getting compliments being touched, being embraced. These are things that signal that you have value and that you're loved. And it's important to have those things to feel good about yourself at a very basic level. Those who are in close, happy, romantic relationships get that. And those with close families tend to get that as well. But that doesn't explain the difference. There is still a difference there. And the difference comes from a couple of different places. One, we have these scripts whereby it's men who do the approaching. Yeah. Uh, and women want us to do the approaching, 90%, I think. Yeah, well, the, the scripts the scripts are there and people have attitudes about the scripts, whether they, <laughs> they, you know, they think that that's the way it should be or not. And part of that, again, is fueled by this long-term, short-term thing. You know, the guys do the approaching, the women do the, the sorting out because women have this role of, trying to figure out whether a guy is serious or not and what his intentions are. So you have that. You also have the thing of the fact that women are more vulnerable than men. And by that, you don't even have to think about that psychologically. You can think about that physically. So women tend to have, it's about 60% of the upper body strength of men, the average woman to the average man. People don't see that. So it's one of those things where if you saw a man or woman side by side, you'd guess, oh, maybe he's 10%, 20% stronger. It's not. It's huge. because of It's the massive. Muscle fiber. It's, it's massive. <laughs> That's and why that a lot of Hollywood to... scripts piss me off quite a lot because yeah, it's it very unrealistic. To, it applies to throwing distance. It applies to grip strength. It applies to pretty much everything. 
And so I think sometimes men underestimate just yes. how physically dominant they could be over a woman. Yes. And that's where a lot of fear of men comes from. I know I'm center of the ground here because half the time people's like, oh, Andrew's, Andrew's an awful feminist. And then the other time I have the feminist going, ah, oh, he's bloody awful. You know, he needs <laughs> to be more. So I, I'm treading a middle ground here. But the fact of the matter is women are generally more vulnerable. They perceive themselves as more vulnerable. And so they're very cagey about approaching men that they don't know to say things that might lead the conversation down a path they don't want it to go down to. And it's one of those really weird things, actually, because statistically, women are more likely to come to harm at the hands of someone they, they know than what they don't mm. than someone they don't know. Well, yeah, stranger um, rape versus acquaintance rape is that. Yeah, is the yeah, yeah. However, you know, it is still still a fact that you have those differences there, and that's why you get female hypervigilance. Yeah. So I think that kind of feeds into it a little bit. The other thing that feeds into it, though, is this really interesting phenomenon whereby people think that their experience is the same as others. So actually, in my harassment work, we've realized this works with sociosexuality quite well. So if I'm someone who's high in sociosexuality and I really want casual sex, I will assume that other people do as well. So, of course, when I'm hitting on them, I'll be like, right, let's cut to the chase. Let's talk about the sex thing quite early on into the interaction, which can then lead, if they're doing that towards someone who isn't that way, can lead to impressions of sexual harassment, which aren't necessarily intentional. I want to harass you. It's more, this is what I think relationships are about, sex. I'm initiating a relationship with you. Let's start talking about sex earlier on. So you have this sort of, what applies to me must also apply to other people. It's like a misfiring of theory of mine. And again, I think that is feeding into this male-female complement thing, because I genuinely think that women think that men get this stuff <laughs> sorry that was that was a snob division i shouldn't have said that no, but, but it was but that it's, is... it's like i i get compliments i get affection i have same sex friends who are nice to me why wouldn't men be getting this too when the reality is that they don't i have two follow-up questions to this the first one is is one of the reasons why this happens or shall we say one of the explanations to why this happens is that for example do men overestimate a woman's perceived interest in them if they give them a compliment. Like I've received a compliment so before. I'm like, oh wow, she must be really interested in me. Sometimes she's the buzzer just giving me a general compliment. But because you get it very rarely as a man, you can perhaps overestimate it in your mind. Yeah. So that's the sexual overperception bias. Uh, yes. It's an offshoot of error management theory. And absolutely, you know, it's a it's it's a very well established thing. So I think women, to some degree, know this as well, which is why, you know, I don't want to necessarily pay him a compliment because maybe he'll look yeah, read too yeah. much into it. But I think you're right. Just the rarity alone means that when it does happen, maybe people read too much into it. And I suppose there's the counter argument there then that if it happens to women, say you have a woman and it happens to them all the time, then the value of it also decreases yes. that end as well, right? So I think part of it is is to do with that. There's a lot of different forces here that unfortunately... There's no one straightforward answer for why it doesn't happen. I think it's a culmination of lots of different forces, both on women's side and on men's mm. side as well. And do you also think another main reason here is because men stereotypically show their love to one another through hazing, i.e. taking the piss, and so regular compliments based on other aspects of their life, let alone their looks, is pretty rare, whereas women stereotypically can compliment each other through meeting each other for 30 seconds. You know, that's the stereotype. 
that is the stereotype and it's one of those stereotypes where i'm pretty convinced there's a grain of truth to it you know guys are notoriously bad at talking about their emotions especially in group settings and they tend to sort of build up their relationships with one another through a bit of piss taking Mm -hmm. Uh, that happens quite a lot knowledge exchange sharing if they do share feelings it tends to be less about interpersonally about themselves and maybe more about things out in the world or experiences that they have and we need to have a few drinks Um, in us (laughs) yeah that certainly does help that does certainly does emotional Um, lubricant yeah absolutely you need to really guys really need that extra level of trust to open up yes and the knowledge that actually i mean this is something that is is similar across both sexes but doesn't necessarily appear that way like women are notoriously worried about being judged and that holds them back from doing things And that affects men as well. So men are much less likely to open up and share vulnerabilities out of the worry of being judged by other men as being weak, but also then what the consequences of that weak judgment might be in terms of being taken advantage of. And so I think you have to be in a very, very comfortable and trusting place with someone before you're willing to get vulnerable with them. Let's move on to a topic which I wasn't expecting to discuss so soon after my episode with Joe, which is incels. You've mentioned it already, but through your work, you have conducted the largest ever study done on incels. So tell me how and why you wanted to do this and what you uncovered about their mental health. So there is a lot of really bad incel research out there. I would say... So incels are incredibly skeptical of academic research about them, and they should be, because in my view, 80% of it is either research with no data attached, or it's research on what we call secondary data analysis. So they go and strip forum responses, which of course biases things because it's only the views about people who are producing the content. And stroke or it's ideologically based. So a lot of the labs that are looking at incel research are very much grounded in feminist theory in a toxic way to the point where before they've even done the research, they know what they want to prove. They're setting out to demonize all men who are associated with this community. My view is that there are a lot of men in that community saying stupid, shitty and awful things. And there are some men in that community who are doing incredibly awful things in terms of harassment and harm to women and men, to just other people. But it's not everyone. So what I wanted to do was get on board with just doing some research that calls it down the middle, that does primary data collection. So actually gathers data from incels telling us what they think treating them first and foremost as humans before you understand what they're going to say. So we're actually the first study to actually pay incels for their time, you know, paying people, which is what you normally do for psychology research. So it's actually saying, hey, you're a person. And then saying, you know what, well, when we set out to do this in a systematic, non-biased way, without an agenda, what happens? And if they then say shitty things, then we will tell people they say shitty things and the extent of that and how many people are saying that, and then people can make their judgment. But by doing that, we might also reveal some things which are being overlooked and things which are perhaps counter the prevailing narrative. And that's what we've done. So the first thing that we found is just how poor in-cell mental health is. 
it's ridiculous. We're talking 22% of incels have daily thoughts of suicide. We're talking 25% of them meeting the clinical diagnosis for moderate to severe depression, anxiety. About 35% of them would pass the screening tool in the NHS that would trigger an autism assessment high levels of loneliness, high levels of suicidal ideation, high levels of perceived victimhood, their mental health is through the floor. And that is not a narrative-friendly finding. That's not something that the news wants to report on. It's not something that ideologically motivated researchers want to talk about because they want to say, incel bad, therefore we don't care about whether they're suffering or not. What is interesting about that, though, is that we know, and it, I'm not saying that incels are offenders, but I'm just using a related, not a related, but just an interesting comparison. We know that poor mental health in prisoners is one of the best predictors of whether they will reoffend when they leave prison. And actually, if there was a recent study came out, 2019, I think, which actually showed that all of these CBT-grounded interventions aimed at stopping prisoners reoffending, by and large don't work but general mental health support does so if you give general mental health support to prisoners they're less likely to go on and reoffend. but people don't like that finding because people go oh well prisoners they should be suffering with their mental health because they're bad and we don't want to help them and so it's kind of counterintuitive that if you were to help prisoners with their mental health it would actually make things better. And I almost feel like there's a parallel thing going on with incels. They have these terrible sexist views, therefore they deserve to suffer. So the idea of actually focusing on their mental health and helping their mental health is something that people would not be on board with, despite the fact that that's probably something that's going to change those negative views and reduce their risk of harm. What things did you uncover during the course of this study that surprised you or shocked you? You know, I've spoken to quite a few people about this topic. I've spoken to a former incel with Matt Henry. I've spoken to obviously yeah. Joe, I've spoken to Nama Kate. And one thing that I've also found, and it's something that is probably one of the main reasons why I wanted to at least try and dive into this topic from a non-partial basis. And obviously I've spoken to William Costello, who was the first person I spoke about this, mm -hmm. is that a lot of these men have been sexually abused or they've got ADHD or they've had really bad home lives or, you know, all these sort of issues. And I just feel like that kind of gets lost or dismissed in a way yeah. that other groups of people might not have that same dismissal. Yeah. So I've done quite a few qualitative interviews with incels about their path into inceldom and their mental health journey and stuff. And what you're saying is right. So for a lot of them, the rejection starts early. So they feel very much like a social outcast in school before mating is even on the table. Uh, so rejected from their family, rejected from friends and excluded from different social networks. And now it's now gotten to the point where the main rejection is from women, essentially. So there is a lot of rejection there. There's still variants. So we asked in the most recent study about experiences of bullying, experience of childhood neglect, and there are still people who are part of this community who are like, nope, never had that, never had that at all. So there is variance there, but there are many cases where it's a long history of rejection and abuse that have gotten men to seek the support from the incel community.
In the interest of time, I'm going to move on to the final part of this topic, Andrew, which is counselling. You've mentioned it already. So you graduated from this qualification in August 2023, and it started during the COVID-19 period where you thought to yourself, am I directly helping people with my research? So why was counselling an answer to this question? So, yes, my research is largely quantitative, which means we find patterns and trends And it's super interesting. It's interesting from that sort of how does the world work? But if you think about someone who reads that finding and like, what impact does that have on their life? It has very little. And I was there thinking it would be lovely to broaden things out a bit so I could actually have a real impact on individuals' lives and be able to see that and make someone's life a little bit better. And there's a big chasm between quantitative research and the type of stuff that does that via maybe some applied stuff. I don't know. So I looked into counseling. I decided why the hell not? Because the other thing is that I am very passionate about male mental health. I do see it as something which is neglected. I do see men in part to blame for that because we have this barrier up that stops us engaging with services. But in order to be a part of the solution rather than the problem, I think there needs to be more male counselors out there who are willing to set a good example and and, and be reassuring, especially for men who, if they're feeling a sense of shame related to their lack of efficacy within relationships, plumping them down in front of a a female counsellor who is in their mid to late 40s, it doesn't set up that thing of, well, you're going to be able to empathise with me and understand what I'm going through. I've met quite a few men now who will literally say I couldn't have this conversation with a woman and they actually feel like they can open up because it is another man in that environment. A similar thing with alcoholics actually there are some alcoholics who only respond to treatment if it's being administered by someone who's an ex-alcoholic because they have this oh you you know what I'm going through so I think having more men doing counselling and psychotherapy is moving things in the right direction to helping men engage with mental health services but yeah it's something i'm i'm definitely passionate about and mainly you know i had that experience where that i told you about what i a long time ago i was cheated on quite badly and a couple of months later i went and had counseling about that and i was very angry i was filled with anger about it and i want to express how angry i was at this betrayal and this young female counselor that i had had no idea how to handle that what to do with it and I ended up just basically getting discharged because she couldn't handle that and actually when I was doing my training I saw a lot of that I saw a lot of young female counselors who when it was right we've got a client here and he's feeling a bit angry about things they'd be like I can't see him they would like completely they would treat anger as a threat as if instantly as a threat, mm. instantly as if it's an abnormal part of the human experience, when the reality is that in the therapy space, before you even get to those expressions of anger, you develop quite an intense therapeutic relationship with the other person. And the vast majority of the time, they're not angry about you. They're angry about something else. And also a lot of the time with humanistic counselling, you're being led by them. You're not challenging. You're not sitting down going, you shouldn't be angry and stuff like that. So a lot of the time when men are feeling angry, the risk is actually very low 
they just want to express those feelings. It's probably That's higher to themselves to harm, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the thing is that, again, just to do the counterpoint, that's not saying there aren't men who would be a threat to women in the therapy space. Absolutely, there would. But it's a whole spectrum. And you're talking about down that end. And the vast majority of the typical male experiences are there. And you need a place to be able to talk about your frustrations and your anger and to process that so you can move on anger often turns into sadness i'm really really angry that i've been cheated on because what does that say about me it says that i'm unlovable it says that i will never find love and that makes me sad and once the anger turns into sadness it fades away and then the sadness moves into something else and so on and so forth so this is a really long-winded way of saying that i wasn't given that space And I was essentially rejected and just had to cope with it on my own. And now, having done this, I almost feel like things have managed to come around full circle. And I'm now able to give that opportunity to men that I didn't have for myself. Before we reflect, what do you think counselling has taught you about yourself in a way that academia hasn't? And has one helped you be better in the other and vice versa? Yeah, it's taught me a couple of things. So the first thing is it's taught me how to actually listen properly. <laughs> it's a skill, um, mate. <laughs> it is a skill, but it's it's a poison chalice, really, because... When <laughs> yeah, realize, yeah, I know that for a fact. <laughs> well, once you realize what good attentive listening looks like, you realize that people don't do it for you. <laughs> Which, yeah, but you kind of get past that. Mm. I think the circle becomes me, a lot smaller, yeah. In, yeah. in regards to who you disclose to. Yeah, I found that. Absolutely. What it did do for me, one of the biggest things it did for me was it forced me to be part of a group and examine like a a teaching tutor development group. And it forced me to stay with that group for three years. And it forced me to confront how my actions influence others and how their actions influence me. And I haven't had that sort of experience pretty much ever in my life because I'm someone who if I didn't used to think I would get on socially I would just opt out right so I was the kid in school who was always skipping out on PE who never did anything organized who was always a little bit of a loner and I think a lot of that was because I was very scared of being rejected by other people I was rejected quite a lot when I was younger and so I opted out of experiences that would allow me to be rejected Of course, the problem with that then is by opting it out, you do become rejected. You get the same outcome. You're outside of groups. This experience actually forced me to confront how I impact on others, how I piss them off, how I upset them, but also when I don't and when what I say has meaning and value and actually the parts of myself that do have value to other people even when I think they don't or overlook them and that was a very powerful powerful experience to me and as we reflect before we move on mate what has been your proudest achievement on this journey oh god that's a (laughs) that's a hell of a question that's a big question okay I think for me That's such a tough question. That is such a tough (laughs) question. 
I have different achievements for sort of academically and different achievements uh, sort of clinically from a counseling perspective. I think for a counseling perspective, I'll give you an example there. I had a, a couple of months ago, I had a bereavement client, first one, a bit older than me. And I genuinely didn't think that I had the empathy in me and the patience in me and just the metal in me to be able to sit alongside someone who is intensely grieving and getting them through it. Because what a lot of people don't realize about the grieving process is it's quite natural. And so it's very hard to speed it along. Unless someone has been grieving in the same way for two, three years, then you need to do something about it. But if you have someone in the early stages of grieving, it's about sitting alongside someone and just being there for them and helping them process what's happening to them rather than pushing them and trying to move them along. And so it's quite a helpless position to be in. And men, by and large, myself included, like to fix things. Here's a problem. Let's fix it. You can't fix someone who's suffering from bereavement. All you can do is be with them whilst they cry, give them reassurance that their experience is normal and what's happening to them, and giving them hope that things will be different in the future. And I really doubted my ability to do that, but I did it. And I was able to see that person make movement week on week and able to be that person for them where they could talk to me and process things in ways they couldn't do with other people in their life because they were protecting them. I don't want to disclose the nature of my grief to my son or my partner because I don't want to put on them. And I think that was probably one of the most surprising experiences for me that I, I had that in me and was able to do that because I struggle with the concept of death and grief myself personally. And I think that was one of those moments where I was like, hey, you know, I'm actually able to make a bit of a difference here. We've talked all about Andrew, the academic, and the counsellor. Let's go even deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So take me back to the beginning. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Andrew we meet here? Yeah. See, I would have probably given you a different answer to this question a couple of years ago, but In terms of my mental health journey, I've suffered with anxiety and depression a couple of times in my life quite severely. Touch wood, not for the last five years or so now. I'm quite an up and down person, but more downs than ups. (laughs) So I can get pushed off my pedestal and feel quite sorry for myself for quite a while. It takes a little while for me to bounce back up and and drag myself there. So I think I'm a little bit of a a negative Nancy, so to speak. But there's been a couple of times in my life where, uh, especially we talked earlier about feeling one dimensional, especially around those times where, yeah, I've been really low. So I've been on anti-anxiety medication for prolonged periods of, uh, of my life, you know, couple of years at a time and actually that feeds into kind of like my personal ethos around counseling as well because a lot of counselors are very anti-medication very anti-labels and I just don't see that because I knew how useful medication was for me for getting me just that in and of itself for getting me back into a better place and so I really do feel like there's it's a merger of the two can often lead to the best outcomes so Yeah, I had a couple of periods of my life. One of the biggest antidotes for me to that has been strength training. 
So I lift and I lift heavy. I mean, heavy is relative, but as heavy weights as I possibly can for three to five reps of big exercises like squats and deadlifts and bench press. And there is something about being physically strong that I think helps you become more mentally strong. Mm. But it also gives you a another dimension to your life where mm. you could be having a shitty day in work, but if you go to the gym and you do a personal best on the bench press, then you have a win for that day. And actually the lowest points in my life have been ones where I haven't engaged in that as a coping strategy, which thinking back is is quite interesting. I recently had a, a period of maybe about three years or so actually where I had a pain in my back and so I stopped all training when one day I went to and I felt like I had less of a coping strategy to be honest and then one day when I went to see a physio he was saying well actually if you damaged your back six weeks later it would have repaired itself the fact that this is on for three years actually means that you should just be able to carry on training and I did and I did some physio exercises and then actually the back pain went away. So it turned out it was one of those things that by being inactive, it was actually making it worse. Anyway, yes, that's a bit of an aside. But the other thing, so I've, I've had depression, anxiety, I've used medication to cope with it. I've used therapy to cope with it and I've used gym work to cope with it, which is one of my things as well. Like I know that with the incels, there's the whole looks max community, which is like going into the gym to try and look as best as, as you possibly can. I think where a lot of people fall down is they see the reason for that as being to then become more attractive. I would argue there's reason for doing that full stop, and that's to show skill mastery, which is important for mental health. Exercise is important for mental health. Achievement. When you lift he- achievement, yeah. Once you lift heavy, actually, your heart rate goes up as well. Yes, so there's lots of different reasons. The other reason I said oh, I would probably have given you a different answer a couple of years ago is what I've come to realize about myself is I have some weaknesses with regards to both alcohol and binge eating as well. Mm-hmm. That's always been a massive coping strategy for me that when I feel low, I go for those. I still can't figure out why that's there. And to some extent, it doesn't really matter why that's there. What it matters is you try to address it and do something with it now. So I've struggled quite a bit with alcohol over the years. Now I'm in a much better place with that and I have a much more healthy relationship. But I do slip up from time to time. I want to go back to the relationship breakup, if we can, mate, because you spoke about it earlier in the pod and it's not something as an issue I've covered much on the podcast before with men and there's probably a lot of reasons for that I know that infidelity affects men and women in similar ways in regards to the humiliation angle for sure but for men is there an emasculating angle here and a shame which causes them a not to talk about it and b not to seek support for it I think you've got two different things going on I think the feelings that you get associated with it are not necessarily sex specific. So you're talking about masculinization. Yes, it could be, for example, that I was cheated on. What is it the other guy has that I don't? Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Are they taller than me? Are they more muscular than me? Etc. Etc. That applies to women as well. Is she younger than me? She got bigger breasts than me and, and stuff. I think the difference is in the coping and the coping strategy. So women tend to have a much larger social network than men. And see average. them more regularly. Yeah, See them more regularly. It's more normal to talk about feelings within it. We also know that women tend to have male friends 
who are interested in them potentially as more than a male friend. So there's also in their orbit. Yes. In their, <laughs> yeah. So there's also, you know, and, and there's no judgment associated with that, but the fact of the matter is that means that opportunities for moving on more readily present themselves there. Whereas I think the differences with male is smaller social network, fewer opportunities. Plus we have this thing where we worry very much on how we're going to be perceived thought of and taken advantage of if we talk about our feelings and i think it's that latter end that really makes the difference post breakup in how men and women cope with it i guess what i'm saying is it's not the feelings it's how you cope with the feelings mm -hmm. let's talk about the main part of your mental health journey which is these two bouts of depression that you've had andrew in around 2012 and 2016 i want to talk about the mm. first one because it, it came in anxiety as well but just tell me how you felt during this period of your life and how you overcame it yeah so the 2012 one was particularly rough because so I had that relationship breakup and I was cheated on and because I was cheated on with someone that I knew quite closely it really shook my foundations around trust in other people Especially then when I went to see a counsellor and they couldn't help me, couldn't deal with it after I trusted them with my emotions. So it sent me down this pathway for a good five, six, seven years of really becoming almost paranoid about other people. And especially like things going on behind my back, outside of my knowledge that could do me harm. And not just within interpersonal, so in all sorts of contexts. So I still remember now, like when I was in work, if a manager said to me, I've got to talk to you about something later, they couldn't. They absolutely couldn't. I wouldn't let them. I wouldn't let them leave the room. I remember almost getting to the point of tears at one point saying, no, no, you can't leave something dangling over my head. I need to know what it is. And yeah, that was a pretty tough time in my life because as I said, it happened globally not just specifically i would get very skeptical of all authority of the police of conversations like i said happening in work conversations happening with friends all this like oh i was completely caught unawares previously now what else could be going on behind my back now when i started my anti-anxiety medication that helped quite a bit but that sort of capacity that sort of paranoia i guess you could say carried on for quite some time and it took about maybe seven eight nine years before it started really getting to me feeling like oh that's normal now that doesn't happen to me anymore three years before that you got to the place where you were better you had a second bout of depression in 2016 so what brought these symptoms on again was it a different trigger to the first one yeah, so that was three years later from the first one. Yeah. So yeah, so that one then I think was just about feeling very deflated with life and with what I wanted to do. So that was around the period of time where I was wrapping up my PhD research and it was just a very intense grind. So by that point, the working nine to five as a manager in retail was primarily my identity and the identity and the hopes of sort of research academic Andrew were 
shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And I just wasn't very happy in my job for a number of different reasons. And so with that one, I think that time was more about helping me to just cope and get through those feelings. And eventually, I mean, that worked. That that gave me the ability to cope with the day-to-day that then allowed me to hold on for longer until I could get to achieve what I wanted to achieve. There's a theme here for, for us today that I don't talk about much, which is that identity thing and having many strings to your bow. And back then, I didn't. Back then, my identity was work, one day a week, maybe doing research to finish it off if I could get it in. And then that was essentially it. You've touched on it earlier in the pod, but my next topic is around the discourse between medication and therapy. And you've kind of outlined your own perspective on this. And I have got quite a nuance for your medication in the sense that I'm not in kind of either camp when it comes to my advocacy for or against. But so many guests I've had on will tell me their story of going to their GP or their local NHS service disclosing mental health difficulties normally tends to be depression but can be something else and the first thing they're given is antidepressants and sometimes given a leaflet and I think this sort of simplistic approach has changed in recent years but I still think there's pockets of it which do occur however on the other side you've got some therapists who believe that medication specifically SSRIs isn't helpful in any instance in regards to long-term medication so why do you think we've landed in this position where both sides are really quite polarized I mean, for the former, it's because drugs are cheap, right? In my view, they work. In my, I know there's been some counter evidence that's come up recently, but I'm a little bit skeptical of it. In my view, they work. SSRIs, you take them two weeks later, you get a bit of a fuzzy brain, and then boom, something changes. And it, and it blunts both ends of the spectrum. You don't feel as worse, but then things that would give you joy don't give you as much joy anymore. And there are some other side effects that you get, but they serve a purpose when you need them. The issue is, if the thing that caused you to be anxious or depressed in the first place doesn't change while you're on them, because if it doesn't, then you're stuck on them. So times in, well, the second time in my life, for example, I would call that more of a reactive depression. The life circumstances that I were in were shitty. The SSRIs helped me cope with that a little bit better. And then when the circumstances changed, coming off the SSRIs meant that I didn't feel anxious and depressed anymore. Now, where that's not going to work is if the thing that's underlying the anxiety and depression is something that's more pervasive. Like, for example, the way that you view the world and the beliefs that you have or some life circumstances that just isn't going to change and isn't going to go away. So there's a lot of nuance in there, and I'm very skeptical of people who are like blanket, no, they have no use for that reason, because it's not a very nuanced position to have. The problem with the NHS is, like I said, they're cheap. So they're easy to just hand out as a first port of call before then saying, okay, well, they're not working, so we will now invest more money in you by giving you access to therapy. The one thing that I think that I'm more normally a sort of describing things as they are type guy rather than how they should be. But I think the one thing that I would change is getting access to training for counseling and psychotherapists. There's essentially nothing out there. There are some pockets of funding for if you're an ethnic minority, particularly in the States. But for me as a male with a a degree in a related but unrelated area, your 
in a position where if you want to become a counselor or a psychotherapist and you want the training, you've got to pay for it out of your own pocket with no support. Mm. You're ginger, you're a minority. Can't you play that card? Uh, okay. I try and it doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> That's doesn't discrimination, work. mate. That's the last work. form. <laughs> you've got to do a certain number of hours free labor that isn't paid. You've mm. got, because it's free labor, you've got to, while paying for your own insurance, while paying for supervision, like there's so many barriers in the way to actually getting people trained up to being mental yeah. health professionals. People Is it any that. wonder mm. why they're reverting to the, well, give them some pills because we can make the pills at a rate of knots, but new counselors and psychotherapists, not so much. So I, I do, I wish there was more investment and, I, and everyone was like, oh, you know, post COVID, there's obviously going to be a lot more investment in mental health services. I yeah. haven't seen anything at all, anything at all. And I've been in a privileged position where I was able to to do this training. But that's where I think the one side, the over-reliance comes in, not from a philosophical place of it should just be drugs, but a practical place within the NHS. Because if you compare it to other companies, so in Germany, for example, get, so I've got a f- good friend of mine who's a psychotherapist in Germany, and you know you get that on your healthcare, and people can just go and sign themselves up to therapy with very very german approach to it isn't it (laughs) exactly and it just gets claimed it just gets claimed back so it's more of a uk nhs thing i would say than it is a philosophical view of drugs first let's reflect on your mental health journey andrew so same question as in the first topic what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself first of all it's taught me that i'm quite a negative person In general, no, but I, I, I do mean that seriously. Like I have a tendency. I'm the type of person where I will achieve something, and I won't give myself any time to celebrate. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But it's always on to the next thing. So I'll get a successful grant, and I'll allow myself to be pleased for for one day, and then the next day it's, oh, but what's the next thing? Or I haven't done this. That can be a pro. That can be a pro, but it also it, can be a big con, yeah. Yeah, well, the pro list is it moves you on to doing things, but the yes. cons list is that you then live a life which has never been... Present. ...stopping mm. to actually... Yeah, present, mm. stopping to grant yourself things and feeling happy about yourself. Where that comes from, I don't know, but I'm glad that I've learned it about it so that I can try and take stock and try to do something about it. So I have learned that. If I've learned that, in my view... There is a place for medication alongside therapy. I've also, I think, my mental health journey has... I did my training in humanistic therapy rather than CBT, even though I really like CBT and I'm going to be doing some further training in CBT. And I was a little bit sceptical of humanistic therapy, but I have learned to see the value of that, of just being able to create a space that reinforces the client and builds them up to be the person that they want to be and actually how much value that can have to someone. And actually just by fact that most people don't have that space in their lives. Most people don't have a space where they can say exactly what they want without having to worry about what the other person is thinking about, process things for themselves and figure out what they want to do to move in the right direction for themselves. So I've learned a lot about that as well. Although that's more my counseling journey than my mental health journey, I suppose. Mm. And as a final question, if you could go back and talk to the Andrew who was in the midst of that relationship breakup, feeling betrayed and not feeling like he could trust his therapist either, the Andrew who was trying to juggle a full-time job with a full-time academic career, 
or the Andrew who was about to train as a counsellor, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I would probably say try to put some distance between the different parts of yourself and the different parts of your life that you have and understand that just because one isn't working like clockwork doesn't have to impact the others. I would say that. The other thing that I would say is that there are probably a lot of relationships that you're ignoring and not maintaining and that you should change that. That there are a lot of little things about socializing with other people that on the face of it look like they're inconsequential and you don't have to bother with birthday cards, things like that, but that actually it's all part of a very intricate dance of building a social network for yourself and having that support when you're older. Because as you get older, it's harder to form relationships. So it's better to look after the ones that you have while you still have them. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Andrew, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. This is a general natter and quickfire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? My mental health at the moment is quite good. I'm bricking it a little bit because I have a little one on the way. Um, oh, congratulations, So mate. Yes, I had a little bit of... Uh, we started getting baby clothes in on washing the baby clothes. And so I held up this little t-shirt the other day and I was like... Oh my God, that's existential crisis (laughs) right there. Because I'm happy, but I'm quite scared. And I think at the moment I've been quite thoughtful thinking about what type of dad do I want to be? So yeah, that's the main thing that is playing on my mind a lot at the moment. But it's a nice thing to be able to think about. It's a a big, big mixed bag of emotions. Aside from that, I think my mental health generally is okay. I think one thing at the moment that I do need to work on is my smartphone use. I'm definitely down that sort of addiction pathway for as much as you can call it an addiction to the point where if I'm sat on my own for 30 seconds, I have such a strong compulsion to pick up the phone and check it and check Twitter and stuff Mm. like that. Even loading screens on a video game or something like that, I have to pick it up and do something. And I do feel like it's now starting to add distance in my relationships. You know, like I'll sit next to my wife of an evening and spend an hour on my phone when we could be talking and stuff. And it's also one of those things where when you go to bed, I actually, I literally feel fatigued from just scrolling through my phone over and over. So I think at the moment, that's my biggest challenge is that I need to do something about that. And so telling you about it is going to make that real. <laughs> but outside of that, I, I do feel quite good at the moment. I feel multidimensional. I feel like I've got different things going on and they're all ticking over quite nicely. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Excellent. What age were you, mate, when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Oh, my goodness. I thought it was a quick-fire question. That's a massive question. (laughs) It's Um, a mix. (laughs) Quite young. So Mm -hmm. probably around primary school age for me. I was someone who was bullied a lot when I was a kid, specifically because of my hair colour. People just wash over that as if it's uh, as if it's nothing but in the same way as you get sexism and you get racism and you get 
people picking on each other because of height. You know, people will lock on to physical characteristics that someone has no control over and bully the shit out of them because of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was me when I was younger. So I was very much acutely aware of distress, psychological distress when I was younger and how I was having it when not everyone else was. And can you remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like on the one hand, a very big moment or like a burden or weight had been lifted or on the other, something very easy and normal to do? So my mother suffered from really bad mental health and still does depression and anxiety. And so I feel like I've had many conversations with her over the years as I was growing up about how that affected her and and medication she's on and stuff like that. So I feel like I was always acutely aware of that, but not necessarily applying it to me. The first time it kind of applied to me was when I just felt so overwhelmed that I was, I think I was talking to my mother about her action and I just burst into tears. And that for me was right. I've now passed a point where I need to to reach out and get help. And when I say burst into tears, I don't mean sort of, oh, you know, watched a Pixar film, got a couple of tears sort of thing. I mean like an uncontrollable fucking wail for like 10 yeah, minutes. Ugly like, crying. This isn't, yeah, ugly Yeah, yeah. So it's like this isn't just upset, crying, expressing an emotion and stopping this is like a cathartic release of something that's been building up for a long time. And then that was like, right, well, this is, this is more than as it should be. And then I remember going to see my GP and crying there as well and getting all out. And then that was when, um, yeah, that's when I think stuff then fully got plopped on my radar of like, well, maybe you're someone who's going to have some mental health challenges of your own as you grow up. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health, mate? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? So for me, the one thing that does trigger, especially when it comes to, say, use of alcohol and food, is if I find myself having to do a task for a long period of time that I really don't want to do, it can leave me feeling almost trapped and then that becomes a, a coping strategy for that. So that I've learned over over the years. But apart from that, it's when my life becomes consumed just about one thing and doesn't leave space for, for other things. When everything's going great in that thing, fantastic. But the moment I then get a bit of a disruption, everything falls to pieces. And then conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have worked maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't yeah so extrinsic motivation helps and by that i mean other people so i have people in my life now who get very stroppy with me if i work past five o'clock and get very stroppy with me if i check my emails on annual leave and they're things i wish that i could say i started initiated and did for myself but really i didn't but i see the value in it so if you have strong friends strong family who can help you set boundaries for yourself that you're used to crossing that can be very useful and has been very useful for me. In terms of self-led coping strategies, making, like I said, by the work that I do in the gym and stuff is is a real thing that's like just for me that's super useful and really gives me a, a strong sense of, not purpose, but a, just a stronger sense of masculinity and identity, I would say. That's really the only two things that come to mind right away anyway. 
Okay, bro. And also exercise as well, which is obviously probably a big yeah, help. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, a album, a TV show, any piece of popular culture. Oh, there's a couple, actually. There's a couple. I, did think, I did think of one. I knew you were going to ask this question. I did think of one. <laughs> I've bloody forgotten it. So there's one book that I'll return to time and time again, actually, which is a book called The Rules of Work, mm. which not many people know about because it's not a scientific publication, but it's a guy who's just written this book with advice on how to conduct yourself in a workplace. And it's a really, really good piece of literature for reminding you that you're different to work that it's a place where you need to remain professional, get a bit of distance. And that if you go somewhere, you want to go somewhere, you need to act as if you're going somewhere and you need to take steps to get there. And whenever I read it, actually, it's it's a really good, uh, it, it injects a bit of professionalism into my life and it gets me thinking a little bit more about longer term goals and not getting caught up in the day to day. That's a really interesting one. I'm just trying to think. Oh, I picked it out as well. I did pick out <laughs> another one. And I've bloody forgotten what it is. Oh, that was it. It was one of Stephen Pinker's books. It was Enlightenment Now. I'm oh, pretty okay. sure it was Enlightenment I've got, Now. I've got his A Brief History of Violence on my shelf. I'm taking a 12-month yeah. run-up to uh, read. It's about 523 pages in 12 small font. <laughs> Enlightenment Now when you read it completely changes how you view the world because people love to think that this is just the worst time in history for everything. And objectively, it really isn't. Any bad metric you can think of from infant mortality to war to famine and you plot across a couple of thousand years, it's all going down, baby. And it's such a positive place to be. And you can actually, even if you've got someone who's really, really, really super negative about things, you can almost dispel that really quickly by asking one question that Pinker poses in the book, which is like, if you said to someone, you could live in any decade of your choosing or any year of your choosing, you could choose to be born between now and any time in the past, when would that be? And people never choose 19... 19- 39 <laughs> because the war's gonna start people never choose 1980s because you know if you get cancer or you get aids then it you're gonna die from it they you might know, choose the 90s because of housing mate i'll tell you that for free. Maybe they, yeah <laughs> but generally speaking on most metrics this is the best time to live humanity is flourishing more now than it ever has before And the good thing about Pinker's book is that you say that to someone and they go, no, I don't believe you. And then he just relentlessly bombards you with the statistics that objectively demonstrate that. And it's a good antidote for people who, like me, can have a very pessimistic view of the world sometimes. What do you love about yourself? (laughs) I love my calves. (laughs) (laughs) i know it's a physical thing but you can't see this but i never do any calf work but i have these super massive calves um i like the fact that i'm thoughtful i do like that and 
there is one favourite thing about me. There's one thing about me that I have noticed that other people don't do so well. Because I'm average in most things. I'm either slightly above average or slightly below average in most things. The one quality I have is I'm really good at taking things from earlier on in a conversation and referencing them later in like a humorous perspective. I always think, oh, I would do so well on like one of those comedy panel shows or something like that, because I'm very good at remembering all that. That was a funny thing that was said then, and then bringing it into the present at a timely moment. And I know that sounds like such a small thing, but when I put it off and, and it makes people laugh, that validates me so much. I love being funny and I love bringing joy to other people. Every now and then, Eh, maybe every couple of weeks, there's something I will say to my wife that will send her into absolute laughing fit giggles. You know, the type where then you can just say something inconsequential afterwards and it makes them giggle some more. And she'll be like that for like 20 minutes. And when that happens, I feel so good about myself. Mm. It's a good skill for podcasting as well, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure it is. Not that I've done any of it here, but never mind. <laughs> I've got two questions left. The first one is, if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? It would be, if I had a mantra, it would be slow down and don't overcompensate. And lift more. Can't always do that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be another one, though. You know, form. Focus yes. on the form. Keep your form. That, yeah, is something, yeah, yeah. that is something that is a hard-learned lesson in the gym. Mm. Sometimes it's better to take the weight down and get the form better because in the long term, that's yep. going to help you. You learn that the hard way as a man pretty quickly when it comes to the gym. <laughs> you do, especially when you have two uh, slip discs like I do. Yes. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I've woken up many a time with a quick neck from doing too much overhead press. So there we go. And as a final question, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Two things. So what I said earlier, I think society needs to make a real effort to get more men involved as counsellors and psychotherapists. So when men do want to engage, it removes as many barriers as possible. Because there and will teachers be... as well. Yeah. yeah, teachers, absolutely. Because there will be some men out there who one of the only things holding them back is that they're worried about talking to, uh, opening up to a woman. Yeah. Now, whether that's right or wrong is a completely different question. But if you're concerned with pulling down barriers... That needs to be recognized as a barrier. Yeah, yeah. Think, it's like women uh, only wanting intimate care from another female, which is completely fine. And pretty much all men would be fine with that. You don't even have to make a judgment about it, whether it's fine or not. You just need to acknowledge it as a thing and yes. say, if, if you really care about getting people engaged, then you need to pull down those barriers. And I think that that begins by offering bursaries and support for men who want to go into counseling because they don't exist. That's not a popular choice, though, is it? Because no. people won't see that as uh, inclusive, <laughs> even though well, there is a gap. <laughs> but this is the thing, you, you know, if, yes, people yeah, want to see this It's just a different podcast, though, yeah. People yeah. want to see this <laughs> inclusive. The second thing, then, is the other end. What we can do as men 
I really love that advert campaign, that the Ask Twice campaign. I'm yes. not sure whether you saw it, you know, with the yeah. log on the guy. That's one of the things that really resonated with me. And I always ask twice. And I think every man should ask twice. And not because I think what holds some men back is... The trust angle. Yeah, yes, yeah, the trust angle. And some people actually worry about asking as well. They're like, I'm going to find that conversation awkward. They don't want to stare at it. Yeah. Don't want to stare. But you know what? <sighs> You can't make that decision. You can't predict that every conversation is going to be awkward. Otherwise, you'll never have any of those conversations. So try it. And when someone does open up, know that chances are they've thought through lots of different ways of solving the problem. So just trying to offer the practical solutions like we do might not be useful. Maybe later on, just validate their feelings and tell them, yeah, that's really shit. Don't put it on yourself and say, I feel that way too and blah, blah, blah. Just make it about them. And just say, oh, I can see where you're coming from. That must be really, really, really hard. You know, and stay with their emotion. Dr. Andrew George Thomas, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've absolutely loved this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. You're very welcome. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Andrew for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. I will put all of Andrew's social media links and where you can find out more about his research and Darwin Does Dating, of course, in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can go to www.linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the ways you can support Vent, including buying a ticket to the Just Checking In podcast live show on Friday, September 29th at Eton Manor Rugby Club in North East London. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.